Hey everyone, my name is Caitlin Esperon and I am a podcast contributor for The Daily Bruin. I'm Sonia Wong, assistant editor for The Quad, news writer, and podcast contributor for The Daily Bruin. Welcome to Deep Dive, a Daily Bruin explanatory podcast that investigates national, UC-wide, and campus-wide events affecting Bruins. In the last episode of our two-part series, we discussed the impact of ChatGPT on higher education and its potential societal impacts, with experts explaining the differences between ChatGPT and its predecessors, as well as concerns of ChatGPT's development and innovation in the AI market. In the second part, we explore the current and future uses of ChatGPT as AI continues to permeate academia and art. We spoke with Cole Hume, a computer science and philosophy student, who is also president of the AI Robotics Ethics Society. Then we spoke with Daniel Snelson, design media arts and English professor, who is also faculty at the Game Lab for Digital Humanities. Lastly, we spoke with Davide Panagia, political science professor and chair. As a note, these interviews were conducted in April of 2023. During this first interview, Cole Hume talked with us about how he personally uses ChatGPT, along with explaining what he believes college professors should understand about the platform. Hope you enjoy. My name is Cole Hume, and I'm a third-year philosophy and computer science student here at UCLA. I am the president of the AI Robotics Ethics Society here at UCLA. Can you explain more what the AI Robotics and Ethics Society is? Absolutely. So we go by ARIES, and our goal is to educate both future AI leaders Um, So people that are going to be on the forefront of helping um, implement these technologies, figure out how the best ways to output them, figure out the ways that they integrate into particular businesses or policymaking regarding them, as well as just the broader UCLA population who is sure to be impacted by these technologies, no matter their profession. So what would you like professors at UCLA to know about AI in general, but also ChatGBT? Because I know there's been a lot of pushback, especially from professors, and maybe a lot of fear as well as what that is going to mean for their classes. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's a very, very understandable fear. Ultimately, most professors come in with the objective of optimizing for student learning. And Typically, how do we do that? With assignments, with a lot of tasks that can typically be done by any student in a certain amount of time, but, but they need to get done. They need to, they require the person to actually process and, and look over the information in some kind of meaningful way. Um, and it seems like if you can just throw a prompt in the chat GPT, it will completely mitigate that. So I, I completely respect the fear. Um, and I think that in the case with programming, a lot of the lower division of computer science classes, I mean, you could just plug and chug a homework. You could throw it all into chat and basically get 100% on that assignment via that. Yet, you kind of do need some foundational syntax to be a good programmer. I, I, I think the definition of what's going to make a great programmer might change over the coming years, but ultimately, like, understanding kind of what you're just basically looking at and doing some assignments is helpful. <laughs> and then in the case of writers, I mean, I think writing is not just something that's honing a craft and honing your your capability to form and structure sentences, but it's honing your creativity. And usually if you're writing on particular creative topics or, or intellectual topics, you're, you're honing your understanding of things via the written word. So I, I think there is a lot of danger in it undermining really simple assignments. But with that being said, I think it's really, really hard to regulate in the classroom. I don't think that professors can just ignore that and just try to say, we're abolishing chat because you can't use it in the classroom because ultimately there's still going to be a select few that will. Um, and that select few is probably going to be the majority. And you're basically being punitive for people with integrity at that point. 
ultimately, I think all of our professions are going to be integrating these technologies in some interesting way. So I think instead of looking at these technologies as a danger in terms of like these little assignments, looking at it as actually an opportunity to allow these kids to hone an additional skill set that they're going to be able to leverage to be the best at their profession in the coming years. I would just basically encourage all professors to do the research as much as they can and try to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of these technologies. I mean, one of the primary weaknesses that a lot of us have recognized is its ability to get the facts right because it's a large language model. It's kind of it's kind of a, a massive bullshitter at times. Like it's, it's yeah. it just doesn't really care about that about truth or falsity. It's just trying to give you what you want. So if you ask for something, let's say you ask for like a particular article, and then you maybe ask for like an additional parameter, you throw another argument and basically what you wanted in that prompt. It will try to give that to you, even if that's just like flagrantly not a thing, like even mm-hmm. if that is not grounded in reality. So it doesn't usually present representations in that case um, of reality. And that that's, I think, where like one of the big weaknesses are. And I think if professors realize that, I mean, that's a good thing to police for if you're like having kids write research papers. I mean, the facts should be there. Um, and I think recognizing the strengths, though, of like allowing kids to build skeletons really quickly as a philosophy student. The more I've used ChatGPT, I've recognized both fallibility and weakness in, it, in its writing ability. And ultimately, like it's like a philosophy essay has a lot of unique components to it. And it usually does not actually get to a deeper meaning in the philosophical text. It's more so just summation. So that's something that can be supportive and for me to use ChatGPT as like a skeleton, like my outlines. And it actually can save me time in that realm. But it's not helpful in helping me process things. And if a professor actually was to preface that when they give an assignment and tell you like, oh, this is how you maybe could use a tool like this, you might lead to the kid actually using it to save time, to not just be doing busy work for the sake of busy work, and then basically return to their own brain the stuff that the tool can't be used for. And I think professors have to really beg the question for any assignment that they are giving that can be completely done by ChatGPT the efficacy of this assignment. Is there really that much meaning here if this tool can easily do it? What's really like the the reason why I'm having them do it and how could it be supplemented in some separate way? Because yeah, just once more, I think it's really, really difficult to police at this point in time. And ultimately the way that's probably going to start getting policed is another AI that's good at recognizing AI chat. But right now professors can't really recognize whether I wrote the paper or if ChatGPT wrote the paper, unless it's on like a particularly dense topic that chat's just going to really do a poor job at. I was hoping if you feel comfortable, you could explain more in depth how you personally use ChatGPT. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I use it for virtually all my essays in some way. I think it's oftentimes for skeletons. Um, so let's say that if I get like a five-page paper assigned on Kantian ethics or something, I might throw the prompt into chat gpt mm-hmm. well, and like i'll read that and i'll be like oh this is miserable but it did actually say like one thing regarding this one prong of the prompt that i actually disagree with and then maybe it makes me try to double click on how i understand that topic and maybe i actually realize that my understanding of that topic might have been flawed so it's almost like a peer to play around mm-hmm. with it's a collaborator in that sense yeah, typically, I think the dangerous one, though, is if I have like a simple reading response or something and something that's mm-hmm. maybe like a very, very common text that ChatGPT would be familiar with, I might use ChatGPT in a little bit less thoughtful way in those cases if I'm like in like a real time crunch. But I, I would encourage people not to do that. And I think since I'm <laughs> on a podcast regarding um, 
my academic pursuits. I probably shouldn't say that. I do that for assignments, but but I just think ultimately at the end of the day, it's it's best used as a collaborator, and I think it's best used with iteration. I think yeah, if any student is trying to figure out how to best utilize it, I would say try to think of it as like a peer who's stupider than you, um, mm. but is really really quick with getting shit done. There's a lot of positives there, but also a lot of dangers if you just take it at its word. So I guess you've already touched on this quite a bit, but do you have any advice outside mm-hmm. of what you've already said for your peers approaching ChatGPT? Again, I would just really emphasize iteration and not glorification. Don't mm. turn to the tool and assume anything more than what you'd assume if you had a random classmate try to tell you about like a particular topic. Because like with Google search, we're oftentimes going to see the top thing on Google search and we're going to be like, oh, that's, that's just fact. I mean, we might, we might meet it with a little bit of doubt, but when we have just a random person we don't know, some complete stranger tell us something, we might actually greet it with a bit more doubt. I think with ChatGPT, there's a kind of a line to toe where we should not greet it with the same amount of doubt that we maybe greet a random stranger with, because it is trying to integrate some truth within the internet um, and what it's trained on. But we definitely should not greet it with the same amount of confidence that we do with Google. That's where the real dangers will occur. And interpreting those outputs, just always be more interested in the structure that it's essentially presenting rather than the content. For coding, the content can be pretty awesome, but again, it doesn't get context. So you have to do some deep thinking yourself about like the actual application within your own code typically. And then just one other thing that I wanted to touch on regarding how to best use this tool Used as a tutor, the best use case I've definitely seen for myself has been just like going down a true ChatGPT rabbit hole um, (laughs) where I might ask it, explain linear algebra to me like I'm 11 years old and it will give me like something that's actually extremely digestible. And then just continuing down like almost like a drop down list of things I'm learning more and more and kind of allowing myself to like branch my knowledge base of. And I think a lot of professors won't give you that time in office hours to ask those stupid questions, but ChatGPT is really freaking patient. So I I think it's a great tutor in that way. Yeah, I think that that's one of the best things that ChatGPT can be used for is as something that will just entertain everything that you're going to ask and keep on going with you. Thank you so much. This has really been invaluable. I appreciate your perspective. That was Cole Hume, giving us a student perspective about the possibilities and pitfalls of ChatGPT. Then we talked to Professor Daniel Snelson, who gives us an overview of applications of AI in literature creation, fears and shortcomings of GPT's current data collection process, and some hopes about the future of AI and art more broadly. My name is Daniel Scott Snelson. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of English and the Department of Design Media Arts, where I also serve as faculty in the Digital Humanities program and with the Game Lab, uh, he, him pronouns and delighted to be here to talk about ChatGPT. I've been playing with it a lot. Awesome. So could you start a little bit by talking about your experience with ChatGPT, like personal as well as professional? Yeah. um, So I've been tracking AI and generative text for a long time. There's precursors to ChatGPT. Uh, I was just on a podcast talking with Al Phil Reese at the Kelly Writer's House about this thing called the Dada poem generator. Uh, What it does is it takes a a very simple Dada exercise, which is to cut up a newspaper, put all the clippings in a hat, and then pull pull out the words one by one to recompose a poem. Of course, this is a perfect thing for a computer to do. So 
Uh, somebody put this up uh, in the early 90s. And I think it, it serves as a kind of good core principle for the kinds of things we do with ChatGPT. Uh, on the Dada Poetry app, you have an input field, a button that just says Dada. It's a button that says Dada, which I love. Like you Dada eyes the text. Mm -hmm. And then it generates an output text, more or less what ChatGPT does. Mm -hmm. And as you've spoken before, like there have been other forms or similar forms of like rendering text into, say, like technology. What's so special about ChatGPT? Like why has it caught the attention of so many people or why has it caused so much concern even in the education sphere? Well, the real breakthrough is that it's just so convincing. It's increasingly hard to tell if some of the texts that ChatGPT and, and other large language models produce were made, in fact, by machines or by humans. They really tell us more about ourselves, and we're starting to see ourselves reflected with more clarity than we ever have. And I think that there's something kind of horrifying about seeing yourself reflected. Mm -hmm. And I have two follow-up questions to that. So the first one is about the reflection of how ChatGPT gathers information about like humans from the internet. How accurately or how effective do you think ChatGPT is and how far in the general sense do you think we are from attaining that like perfect human replication? And the second question, I know there have been recent technologies specifically targeting ChatGPT, like GPT writing, and just in general, what do you think about them? I think the first thing I want to say, it concerns algorithmic bias. And I think this is one of the most pressing, concerning, and troubling issues with these large language models that do a kind of deep learning that we don't fully understand yet. But we do know where its, its data comes from, right? This, all of the data used doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from humans. It comes from humans on the internet uh, who carry an attendant set of biases and prejudices. Um, uh, racisms and misogynies. Mm -hmm. So these tools, which we see are increasingly pervasive, increasingly important, will be structuring and restructuring knowledge work or content production. So mm -hmm. unless we're experimenting with them, unless we're playing with them, we won't understand how these biases are coming out. On the second part of your question, with the, the importance and the pervasiveness, um, I guess, of new generative methods of text and image and sound production, uh, I think it, it, it goes back to, you know, a certain idea that as these things are better at replicating humans, there's a concern that the humans are no longer needed. And I think that some of these concerns are a bit misguided, right? Like you will always need a kind of human to point at things, to decipher things, to do the kind of rich pattern recognition that humans have always been so good at, right? So we need a, a kind of critical perspective on these things mm -hmm. to get at both where their biases and failures are, to, to find out where the errors are. You, you said definitely there still needs to be somebody there. What do you see for the future development for, say, ChatGPT? Or what are some productive modes of collaboration that we can have as humans from all sorts of discipline with ChatGPT? Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in a, a wide range of artists and poets that are using these tools to, to generate art, to think with the algorithm, uh, to think with ChatGPT, uh, both to find out what it can do but also to find out what is the role of human creativity in a technological milieu that's increasingly determined by these kinds of generative processes. How do we structure language in a way that we can think about its form alongside its content? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think making poetry right now with ChatGPT is really important because we don't know how its forms make meaning. We don't understand how it signifies. And investigating that, exploring that, looking to those limits, to the very limits of its affordances is, I think, 
one way to come to understand what it does, what it does well, and what it fails at. But I was wondering about what you think about ChatGPT, its possible future contributions to art, and just general commentary about how or the humanities field as a whole. What- yeah. <laughs> I don't think we know. I think we're still figuring it out. And this, you know, so for me as a, a kind of media historian, I'd like to look back at earlier moments where uh, people didn't know what to do with the printing press. We're very worried about, you know, what's going to happen to our manuscripts now that we are printing these words or the development of the internet and, and that, the kind of disruption that had to cultural processes. Um, so I think we'll be faced with a similar kind of question, right? Like once some of these forms are freed up from their original purpose, we can think about their aesthetic dimension a little bit more clearly. Yet once the technology becomes normalized, once it's ubiquitous, technology has this very sneaky way of fading into the background. And I think there are so many good examples of, of people who are already working with these tools. I think I, I would start with on a cautionary note, which is you know the kinds of image generators like Midjourney um, or Dolly, uh, they're often trained on very Western image sets. And so I think it, it also should cause us to pause and think about what kinds of databases we're creating, what kinds of images we're feeding, and what kind of inherent presumptions of quality, aesthetic value uh, these things have. So I, I, I would start there. There's a lot of writers who are collaborating with GPT, uh, probably more than would like to admit it, actually. Uh, GPT can be a great tool for bouncing ideas off, for having conversations, for testing out certain kinds of constructions. Uh, one of the artists who I quite like is uh, Keolato McDowell, who's written a couple of, I think at this point, three books uh, in collaboration with AI. So the books, they, they use this really nice typographic feature where they, they modulate between two different typefaces. So you know when K is writing and when the bot is yeah, writing. Right. And, and they, they, they bleed into each other. And so you get this seamless narrative that's really kind of like a co-written work by an author and an AI at the same interface. Um, that's one example, and there's there's many others. Uh, I'd, I'd shout out Liliane Ivan Bertram, who I really love. Uh, I'd also, um, I had somebody else, I'd also like to, to shout out Alison Parrish, who I think is a, a phenomenal writer who's been working with generative systems for a long time. And I, like, never, if you ask me, like, when I was like a kid, I never would have imagined that AI could be something that could be in writing. But then you learn more about like theory, like romanticism or even like formalism. And then you come to realize that writing is so much more complicated process and how Mm. AI has so much of the capacity to like learn and even pick up on styles that it replicates so well the style. Like even in GPT, when you talk to it, you realize it starts to emulate your style and talks back to you. And so I was just also wondering like, how does ChatGPT fit into like the schema of like say academic writing mm. and have you seen it been used? I think <laughs> writing emerges from communities and, uh, and communities and technologies, typewriters, word processors, uh, a whole community of editors. And I think, you know, so when you have something, it's like a mass conglomeration mm-hmm. of like all of human writing on the internet. It brings some of those qualities of writing, which again, have become somewhat invisible back into the foreground, right? And and so its normative mode is one that like relies on this huge communal database to produce novel texts. Um, I think there's something really interesting there that, I, that I'm interested in following up on. 
How do you think ChatGPT fits into the context of higher education, specifically in, say, humanities? Mm. I think that, you know, the core principle of a humanities education is to teach critical thinking, mm -hmm. to teach about how meaning is made, how to interrogate the world around us, uh, how to develop a critical perspective on things that are otherwise taken for granted. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and here, I think that, that, and you know, one of the tools we've used to do that is the essay. The essay is a really good tool for thought. It really trains you to organize thought, to marshal evidence, mm -hmm. to think about facts, to think about rhetoric, to think about what's convincing or not convincing. Now that GPT can do that really well, we might have to invent forms that it's not so good at so that we can continue that teaching paradigm, right? So I think it's really about teaching. It's really about presenting the world. And, and now we live in a world where GPT exists. Like it's not, you know, Pandora has opened this box. It's mm -hmm. not going away. It's not going back. And so the question is not how do we stop it from interfacing with our essays, from, you know, generating fake papers or, or you know, uh, other forms of plagiarism, but rather how can we use it to think critically about the world? And, and for, from my perspective, how can we use it to think critically about itself, right? Like how do we use ChatGPT in a way to understand the technological milieu that we find ourselves imbricated in? Well, speaking of the future of ChatGPT, I also noticed that they're coming out with newer versions. Um, I don't know much about ChatGPT, so I'd like for you to explain a little bit, like what are the differences between the versions? I know they're moving from like version three to four, like what are some updates and how does that look for the future trajectory as a whole for ChatGPT? So far, it's it's really been a matter of scale. So um, early GPT-2 text-to-transformer was much smaller than GPT-3, which was mm -hmm. fed, you know, a, a lot more data, but also had um, a, a, a far greater number of parameters, which is uh, effectively the way that, that bits of data in the collection relate to each other, the vectors of collection. Mm -hmm. um, GPT-3 was then developed, uh, built on top of that, and then GPT-4. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then uh, at that point, I think the sophistication of 4 is what led to a number of industry professionals uh, and, and others for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into, but again, I'm pretty pessimistic about most of them, mm -hmm. uh, to call for a moratorium, like a short pause, because we're going too fast. Do you think there are going to be other forms, similar forms of ChatGPT that's likely going to be like to emerge? How would you conceive of it coming to being? Yeah, um, there's a few different ways to answer this. Uh, Yes, I think, you know, we're just at the very beginning of a lot of developments in, in generative text, image, sound, movies, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of, insofar as we're training ChatGPT, it's also training us. It's it's training us to expect a certain kind of responsiveness from these interfaces um, that we'll probably end up paying like, you know, $5 a month to have like ChatGPT in our Word document, right? Mm -hmm. or Or subscribing so that ChatGPT will help us with our taxes or or who knows what, right? Like you can see the, the use cases are, are kind of endless, which is one exciting thing, but also one of the reasons why there's such a, a kind of gold rush in, in tech corporations right now mm -hmm. to, to harness these kinds of predictive models. But I think that it's really a time to pause and think, like, do we want it to have all of our data? <laughs> do we want it to know everything? And where are the limits to that? And, and who decides? I, I don't think it should just be tech corporations that decide what data it can use and how it can use it. Um, so, yeah, I think all of these things are, are part of an ongoing conversation.
I think the who decides is such an important question to ask. It's like how we decide like what value the narrative voice has the same way in literature as we do now as it relates to ChatGPT. It's really important to think about the power we give it and the power that we ascribe to the person that decides, which as we now know are large corporations. And that can become like really scary because it becomes very disproportionate mm -hmm. for anybody that's using ChatGPT, purchasing from ChatGPT or trying to even develop it in like newer ways too. And so the last question I have is just, what are you most excited about the future for ChatGPT or any related tools? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just more like, you know, the idea of excited. I feel like I'm physiologically excited. <laughs> like, it's like it, it like creates a fight or flight response to me. Like, it's scary. Like, there's a lot going on and, and we just don't understand it yet. Like, I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that as a, as somebody who studies media, who, who studies digital culture, uh, I'm excited by the challenge of mm -hmm. addressing these systems and thinking through them, thinking through their politics, thinking through their effect on the world, thinking mm -hmm. through their effects on culture. And, and, you know, it's, we live in interesting times, right? <laughs> which is a, which is a damning statement, right? Interesting times are, are often scary times. Like they're, they're when things haven't been formulated yet. And so as a scholar, there's, you know, there's a kind of excitement about engaging in that dialogue, trying to think critically. And, and ideally at the end of the day, thinking about how we can harness tools, how we can, uh, how we can critically evaluate and shape how these tools will continue to develop. They're not going to go away again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they will continue to develop. And so I'm excited to play some small role in critically evaluating them as they develop with the hopes that they can be developed toward a better future. Professor Snelson introduced possibilities for integrating AI-generative text modes with art, education, and even our daily lives. While our next interviewee, Professor Davide Panagia, will share an educator's view on ChatGPT, as well as counsel against the dangers of assuming its outputs are true representations of the world. My name is Davide Panagia. I am a professor of political science. I teach political theory with an emphasis on modern and contemporary political thought. So, you know, from the 1700s and then to the present. And uh, my research area focuses quite a bit on uh, media, aesthetics, and political theory. I'm also currently the chair of the political science department. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and agreeing to be interviewed by us. It's my pleasure. It's very exciting. Can you explain what an algorithm is for people who don't really have a concrete idea already? No, <laughs> <laughs> I can't because there, I mean, part of the answer to that question is that, you know, there are so many going definitions of mm -hmm. what an algorithm is. The most conventional and most popular definition that you will find in anybody who writes about algorithms or who studies algorithms at a very basic rudimentary level is that it's kind of a recipe. Mm -hmm. It's a set of instructions to execute uh, particular functions in order to produce some kind of a result that we usually call an output. That output could be a JPEG image, it could be a tweet, it could be anything, uh, a recommendation, and that's why they're so ubiquitous and so effective. But it's basically a set of commands 
that is intended to execute a function. So algorithms don't just operate on their own, right? Because we talk about algorithms, you know, it's this term that's entered into our common lexicon. We use it as if everybody has an intuitive sense or an intuitive understanding of what it is. But as you noted earlier in asking me what an algorithm is, it's almost impossible to give an answer to the question. Most of the types of algorithms that we worry about are the types of algorithms that are now referred to as machine learning algorithms, which generate predictions. And it is the case that any kind of algorithm in order to operate has to have a huge data set in order to generate the kinds of results that we associate with, you know, something like a search engine. Take the classic Google search engine, it produces results based on the greatest number of hits. The problem with that is how greatest number of hits is coded and labeled because every data set requires the labeling and the coding of the values that are being examined, that are being processed within an algorithm, right? And there are algorithms that do that kind of coding. Mm -hmm. But you know, you still nonetheless fall into the problem that the attribution of a value, this is better than that, is based on certain kind of criteria that have to be programmed into the algorithm, right? Those criteria are the criteria which we live in, and they are as biased as our own sort of senses that we all have certain biases because we all have certain preferences, right? Some biases are innocent, like wearing I don't know, a purple shirt rather than a blue shirt. Mm -hmm. But some biases are, as we know, a lot less innocent than that. And so, you know, we are still talking about systems that encode hierarchies of value. You know, this is better than that. This is a better outcome than this outcome. The problem comes that when we see it on a computer page, we tend to assume that it is neutral, it is devoid of bias, it is innocent. And that's the bad assumption to make. And so one of the things that is really important to me and I think to everybody who studies these things is not just worrying about the normative and ethical stakes of algorithms and the kinds of biases that may or may not be implicit within any algorithm, but also the biases we have as readers of a web page in assuming that what we read is somehow neutral or innocent of biases because it's produced by a machine. Do you believe that ChatGPT has similar political effects as a search engine in the way that the algorithm affects its users? Yeah, of course. I am not a ChatGPT naysayer, you know, just like I am not in a sort of spell check autocorrect naysayer. Mm -hmm. I don't believe a student is cheating because they use a spell check. Mm -hmm. rather than keep the mistake, the spelling mistakes on the page because they may not know how to spell or they may have some kind of form of neurodiversity that doesn't allow them to spell in the manner in which neurotypical people can spell, right? So there's a lot of things that need to be unpacked before we can make any decisions about chat GPT. All of those things that need to be unpacked, I find, are politically relevant. You know, from my perspective, from the types of things that I study, I find the reaction against ChatGPT to be very neurotypical, mm. right? There's only one way of learning. It's this traditional American civil rights kind of liberal paradigm of the individual going and learning on their own and producing a work of genius, et cetera, et cetera. 
I don't understand how that's sustainable in a university that wants to attract a large number of diverse students who may not have had access to that pre-programming that is imagined in that ideal student, right? Because really what's happened, what, you know, the critique of ChatGPT, as I've seen it, the sort of moral panic around it is basically saying, oh, it's okay to pre-program students with a built-in algorithm on how to write before coming to college. It's wrong for students to have access to tools that may help them to write better. I mean, yeah. think about it. I mean, think of your ELA classes in, yeah, in totally. high school, right? They were mm -hmm. all about programming you to articulate a formal system for how to write an essay, right? right? What ChatGPT is showing us is that A, we've done that really well at some level, and B, we are lazy in expecting the same types of things as professors and expecting the same types of things to be that formula to be the only formula that's available to us, right? Because not only are we, you know, we become so habituated with that, that now a computer can do it for us. And so the question is, well, first of all, there is an implicit sort of bias in the critique of ChatGPT that says that a neurotypical form of learning is the only one that should be privileged. Can you explain more how utilizing ChatGPT is a form of learning? Yeah, I mean, you know, the number one form of learning how to write is through imitation. Mm -hmm. You can teach people grammar, you can teach people form, but basically you want them to imitate a good essay. Why not use ChatGPT as an example and then get the student to grade the ChatGPT essay and decide whether it's yeah, correct or incorrect, et cetera, et cetera, so uh -huh. that the student interacts in a critical way with the output rather than saying, thou shalt not look. The move towards legislating something and prohibiting something, or at the very least saying that it's inevitably bad, is to me highly suspect, in part because if you look at the history of technology, especially of learning technology over the centuries, there's never been a moment where a moral panic hasn't accompanied the invention of a new technology. That is very true. Right? Yeah. A lot of professors have included statements in their syllabus saying that the usage of ChatGBT for any of the assignments would violate the code of conduct and the cheating policy. Are you in the position that you don't believe that is the case, at least for your classes? Now, there is a very good answer to that question, which is to say that, you know, there is a fundamental belief that learning is individual, that learning is solitary, that learning is the product of the, the person's singular mind, et cetera, et cetera. You go into a science lab and that's not the case. It's collective, mm -hmm. it's integrated with machines, machine learning technologies everywhere in a science lab. It's generating constant amounts of data and patterns of data. What you're asking is a question that can't be answered across the board. If it is the case that some of my colleagues have those types of things in their syllabus, those disclaimers in their syllabus, you know, it's perfectly legitimate for them to do so within the parameters of this uh, university's code of conduct. It's a choice on the part of the professor, which is the nature of academic freedom, right, to decide on what learning looks like within the classroom. And to me, as somebody who's interested in getting students to critically engage their participation with technical media as part of their sense of subjectivity within a democratic society, their sense of political subjectivity within a, a democratic society, 
excluding or prohibiting one's participation with it is problematic because it sort of goes against what I'm trying to get them to learn. We have these crutches all over the place that are supposed to, you know, assist us in dealing with how we manage knowledge and information, right? And this is actually the real problem for me, right? We're in a situation in which we have to reinvent ourselves as humans in relationship to knowledge and information because the systems have changed dramatically. We no longer can rely on our eyes and on our mind because those aren't the only tools for the management of knowledge and information. For me, the bigger question is why do stu students feel compelled to have to use ChatGPT? Do you have advice for students when using AI? You know, I think the most important thing from my perspective, from the things that I teach uh, and learn that needs to be said is to not treat technology as mere tools and not assume that tools don't have biases built into them. That And in order to do that is that you have to do the hard work of unpacking things. Mm -hmm. Our uses, how they were made, what they affect, all this sort of stuff. Professor Panagia left us with some important words of wisdom that will hopefully guide users in an increasingly AI-saturated world. From conducting the interviews to putting the episodes together, we gained a few major takeaways. Firstly, while we should maintain a reasonable amount of skepticism towards AI technology, we should simultaneously be excited for the new opportunities they offer in a multitude of academic fields. Secondly, rather than steering clear of all uses of ChatGPT, we should seek to experiment with its boundaries in our own time, so as to make it as accurate of a learning assistant as we can by providing constructive user feedback. Lastly, the development of ChatGPT has become a crucial time when we should reevaluate our learning methods and how to incorporate technology into our education without developing an over-dependence on the new exciting tools. This is the end of this episode. You can listen to the first part of the series and other Daily Bruin podcasts on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. And the transcript for this show is available at dailybruin.com. Thanks, everyone. See you all next time.